Amen. Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6. Uh, I want to talk to you tonight about something that, um, that I think is, is very timely for the day that we live in. And, and um, um, well, my purpose for, for teaching along this line is to get you to praying about some things. Uh, in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, well, well, we'll start reading in chapter 4. Let me kind of bring you up to speed before we get into to the Scripture themselves that we want to read. Uh, in the third chapter of Luke, it tells us about Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River. Uh, this is John the Baptist, of course, his cousin. And it says that the Holy Ghost descended on Jesus in bodily shape as a dove. Now, that doesn't mean the Holy Ghost is a bird. It means something flew down from heaven like a bird would fly from the sky and landed on Jesus, and everybody bear witness to the fact. There was a voice from heaven that, that sounded and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it says in the beginning of chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, how that Jesus was led of the Holy Ghost into the wilderness. Now, the King James translation says he was led of the Holy Ghost into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil, being 40 days tempted of the devil, verse 2. Uh, it, God didn't take him out there to tempt him. God's not into temptation. The Bible says that no, no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, for God can tempt no man with sin. It doesn't mean God won't test you, but it does mean that God won't tempt you with sin. The devil tempted Jesus with sin. So the point that you need to see is the Holy Ghost led Jesus. Here Jesus is filled with the Holy Ghost after being baptized by John in the Jordan River. And immediately the Holy Ghost sends him into the wilderness. Now what for? To pray. He took him into the wilderness to pray, not to be tempted of the devil. But anytime you commit yourself to the things of God, anytime you separate yourself to the things of God, the devil's going to make sure that you hear his voice too. In fact, the first voice that the Bible tells us Jesus heard after he went into the wilderness to pray was the devil. I see a lot of people going on fasts and stuff like that, and they come out, and, and the, the things that they come out with wasn't God. You've got to realize, anytime you separate yourself to the things of God, you're going to hear from the devil. So the devil tempted him, and Jesus withstood the temptation. Now, let's pick it up in chapter 4 in verse uh, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Every time you overcome a, a temptation, power increases in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you have more power than you had before. It means you overcome an element of the flesh so that that power that you always had can be manifested or revealed. Many Christians never display any power because they never resist the devil. Their attitude toward temptation seems to be sit down long enough until, you know, the, the real problem goes away. They give in and then, and then that's it. But the Bible says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And notice the next phrase, it says, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the, all the region round about. What does that mean? That means he started doing miracle works. Otherwise, there's no fame of him to go to be spread around. He's doing miracle works. I want you to get that in your mind. He's doing miracle works as soon as he comes back from uh, the 40 days of temptation or 40 days in the wilderness that was ended with that uh, on the tail end where he was tempted of the devil. He wasn't tempted of the devil all 40 days. But at the end, when he was hungry, that's when the devil tempted him. Jesus overcame that temptation and returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. I love that phrase. He returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. He returned in the power. Do you realize what the power of the Spirit in you would, would change your life? Do you realize all the things and all the ways that it would change you and change your situation? Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And there went, a fame throughout, uh, there went out a fame of him through all the region roundabout. 
Verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. He taught in their synagogues. So what's the, what's the fame going out about? Well, he's teaching and he's doing miracle works. Otherwise, there's nothing for him to be famous for. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. I wish real, Christians would realize Jesus' custom was to go to the synagogue. Jesus went to church. I don't know, a lot of modern-day Christians say, well, I don't have to go to church. I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I've never understood what that's supposed to mean. If you're spiritual like Jesus was spiritual, then you'll do what he did, and he went to church. But I don't have to tell you this. You're a Sunday night crowd. You're the diehards. So he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Verse 17, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That acceptable year of the Lord is to announce the year of Jubilee. Now, everybody in the synagogues, everybody that's been trained in the law of Moses and schooled in the prophets, know that Jesus has just spoken or read from Isaiah concerning the Messiah. Who but the Messiah could proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee? It's literally saying Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah was come, he would proclaim a period, not a year, not a 12-month time, but a period of Jubilee, restoration, Every man's possession is restored unto him. Now, this is not talking about if you're in debt, you're all of, all of a sudden out of debt. That was literally the way the year of Jubilee worked. But the, the year of Jubilee that's being spoken of here to be brought into being by the Messiah is to restore spiritually everything that we lost when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. He's talking about redemption. And everybody that's been schooled in the prophets knows this. The, the ruler of the synagogue certainly knows this. The average person is going to know this in the synagogue. And so Jesus, after he reads these things, thank you, verse 20, and he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And that's why he has just read about the Messiah. He's known, he's famous, even in Nazareth, for the miracles and the teachings that he's done. Now, all of a sudden, he reads about the Messiah. He reads about the period of time that will be ushered in by the, the, the one that God sends, the prophet that God sends to be the sacrifice for mankind. So the eyes of everybody on the synagogue is fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What does that mean? It means Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. I'm the one. I'm proclaiming the year of Jubilee. I'm proclaiming the period that the prophet that is sent from God to be the sacrifice for mankind would usher in. That's me, and it's now. And I'll bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. He's not hard-nosed about anything. He's not trying to bully himself. He's not saying, you're nothing, I'm everything. He's speaking gracious words. He's telling them, I'm sent from the Father to help you. And they all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, the first thought that came to their mind is, how can, this, how can Jesus be the guy? 
because they know that one of the prophecies about the Messiah, the prophet to come, or that they thought was yet to come, would be that he would be born of a virgin. They know his family. He grew up there in this town. They know his family. So their question is, isn't this Joseph's son? Now their question should have been, Jesus, is that why we've heard so much about your miracles and your healings? They had an option. They're not forced to question who he is. They're not forced to question his pedigree. They could have simply said, we've heard you about all the things that you've done. We've heard about the miracles. We've heard signs and wonders. We've heard about teachings that you've done. That just blows us away when we heard the report. But we don't understand. We know your family. Jesus could have explained it to them. He wouldn't have held back. But their first thought was, no, 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 no. We know this guy. He grew up here. If this guy wasn't from our town, then we might have reason to wonder. And maybe that's why the people in Capernaum or the other region where he's done these miracle works, maybe that's why they didn't question. But we know this guy. Well, they thought they did, didn't they? But did they? No. A lot of people say a lot of things about Jesus because they think they know him. There's a lot of people teaching a lot of doctrines in the church thinking they know Jesus, and they don't. There's a lot of politicians that say things about Jesus when they want to promote their own agenda. But they don't know him. Folks, you need to keep something in mind in the last days. Jesus said that at the end there would be people that come to him and say, Lord, didn't we do great works in your name? And Jesus would say, depart from me, you wicked, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There's a lot of that that you're going to see springing up. You're going to see a lot of people starting to say, well, but Jesus is this. You'll see the, you see the gay activists saying some of this stuff. Well, the Bible's an archaic book. It's, a, it's an outdated book. Jesus loves everybody. Yep, and he loved you enough to die for you so that you change your behavior. You get a lot of people, and a lot, it'll be more and more as we get toward the end. The closer we get to the end, you're going to hear more and more. You're going to hear politicians stand up and tell what they know about God, and it's all going to be to promote their agenda. You watch, mark it down, write down the date and time. It'll be more and more as we get to the end. So they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Now, what does that mean? Well, he explains what that means. Whatsoever that we have heard done in Capernaum. So that must be where he's done works, miracles and so forth. Whatever thou hast done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know what you're going to say next. You're going to say, prove it by doing the miracles. We've heard about miracles in Capernaum. Do them here. Now, let me ask you a question. If we stop right there, what can we conclude about the crowd in the synagogue? Do they believe in Jesus or not? Nope. And here's why they don't believe in him. They think they know his family. They think that they know enough about the scriptures to know that he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the one sent from God to perform all these works that he just read in Isaiah 61. Because they know his family. So Jesus says, because you don't believe in me, these are my words, not his. But paraphrasing, Jesus is saying, because you don't believe in me, I know what you're going to want next. You're going to want me to perform miracles to prove something to you. And he said, verse 24, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Why? Because where people think they know you, they can't distinguish between you as the person 
and God using you as the, for whatever it is he wants you to do. I saw people get in trouble with that with Brother Hagin. People, so many times people um, that I was acquainted with and for the time that I spent around Brother Hagin, they couldn't distinguish between Brother Hagin, the man, and Brother Hagin, the one that God used as a prophet. I, there were, I, I don't mean to tell any secrets about this, but I learned real, real quick being over at Brother Hagin's house. There was a, any of you ever heard of the name, uh, the game Aggravation? It's kind of like Chinese checkers where you move things around the board and that kind of stuff. You roll the dice and move things around the board. Brother Hagin was brutal. He had a nickname for the game. He called it Doogies, but man, he was brutal. If you rolled sixes, two sixes in a row, he would all but come over the table and, and grab you by the throat. He'd accuse you of cheating. First time I was over there, I rolled a couple of whatever it was, I don't know, ones or sixes, whatever it is that you get out and move around the board with. And he accused, he did everything but cuss me. He said, turn the dice over. You're cheating. I'm thinking, dear God. <laughs> this is the prophet of God. Was I cheating? You know, it makes you question yourself. Sit there after a while and you pray, please, God, do not let me get a good number. <laughs> well, people would see things like that and, and, uh, and they couldn't distinguish it. They couldn't, they couldn't piece it together. Consequently, Brother Hagin had the same care and, and concern for people that he loved and, and stuff like that that anybody else would. He, he, people that were close to him and, and stuff, he'd say things to them, giving them, their, giving them his opinion, but they'd think he's speaking by the word of the Lord. And I've seen people make mistakes in what, they, what, the, what God really wanted them to do in their lives because of something Brother Hagin said just as being somebody they cared about. Brother Hagin was always real careful to tell you if this is God speaking. And it was your responsibility to know whether or not he, to realize whether or not he said that. And if he didn't say that, his opinion counted just as much as yours or anybody else's would. A lot of times, people can't distinguish between somebody that God is using and them as a human being. Nobody's got the Spirit of God on them, anointed, anointing them all the time. You couldn't stand it. Well, when that anointing lifts, when that anointing's not in operation, you're just as human as the next guy. Now, a lot of people don't act like that's the way it works, but that's the way it works. A lot of people act like they've got God on them all the time, so anything they ever do is, is the, the word of the Lord or the, the hand of God. Or, well, that's just stupid. That's just taking advantage of people that are ignorant. And a lot of people do. So that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying no, man, no prophet is accepted in his own country. You think you know me. You can't distinguish between me and the anointed one. I haven't been here since I've been anointed by the Holy Ghost when I was baptized in the Jordan River. I'm a different guy than I've ever been when I've been here in town. His character was the same. He was just as honest as he was before, but he's never been anointed by the Holy Ghost in Nazareth. But they think they know him. Then Jesus goes on and says, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. When great famine was throughout all the land, but under none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon. That's outside Judea, by the way. It's outside of the, the, the nation of Israel. A city of Sidon unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers went out in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving, saving, or accepting Naaman the Syrian. And they and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. What are they mad at? Jesus has just said... Don't be amazed. Don't be surprised when God passes you up. Why? Because he's rejecting, they're rejecting the one that God has sent. 
Why? Because they think they know his background that disqualifies him from being who he says he is. Can you see that? So they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. Folks, you need to understand something. When people's religious doctrine is is cut across, they're willing to kill people. Let me ask you this. What's the difference in this situation and in this instance? What's the difference in them and ISIS? None. They're willing to kill for what they think they know. And what they think they know is wrong. That doesn't stop them. They're willing to kill him. But he passing through the midst of them went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. I've always wondered how Jesus got away. I think we all have the Hollywood idea where he just disappeared, just vanished, and all of a sudden he appeared again on the materialized on the other side of the crowd. But, you know, that's not usually the way God works. Jesus probably just turned around and they couldn't reach him. He probably just turned around and walked through the crowd. And as much as they might have wanted to throw him off the cliff, they were held from doing anything. They're probably wondering, why didn't, why didn't Joe grab him? Why didn't Frank get him? Because they can't reach him. They can't move. They can't do what they're intended to do. Now turn with me over to Mark chapter 6. This is the story of Jesus in Nazareth. Mark gives us a little bit different information about it. A little different insight into it that if you combine the two is uh, instructive. Let's start in verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1 of Mark. And he went out from thence and came into his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? And are not all of his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Notice that there's the same situation, just a little different wording, a little different telling of the story. They're offended at him because they know his family, and they can't figure out why is he able to do the things that we've heard him do. He's not doing them there. But what would enable him to do the things that we've heard about him? We know this guy. He grew up with us here in town. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country. You can see this is the same setting, same example, same event. A prophet is not without honor, but or except in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work. Now, folks, I want you to notice that verse of Scripture. If you've heard this before, I apologize for being repetitive, but this is one of the key ingredients to learning and growing spiritually. You need to understand that Jesus did not have unlimited power that he could turn on and off like a light switch. Jesus did not operate here on the earth as the son of God with unlimited power at his own disposal or at his will. To use it whenever he wanted to and and to determine when and how and if it would, would operate. That is not the way that it worked. It says and he could there do no mighty work. It does not say he would not. It says he could not. That means he was unable. He didn't have the power in this case, in this instance, to make it work. Why? And he could there do no mighty work. It tells us the only thing he was able to do. Now, mighty work would be a miracle, healing, raising a a cripple, or healing a blind eye, or something like that. You would well understand what mighty work is. It would be some great miracle of healing. He was not able to do that. 
And he could there in Nazareth, in his own hometown of Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. But what was he able to do? Here's the only thing that he was able to do. Now, folks, please understand, just as far as we've read so far, the implication is God wants more to be done. He could there do no mighty work. If God didn't want more to be done, then it would have said, and God decided not to, be, not to let him do anything. The fact that it says that he couldn't implies that he wanted to. He wanted to do the same works there that he's done in Capernaum or other places that he's been. He wants to do the same works that they want to have proven for them. But there's a reason why he can't. And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks. Bind's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says of this word sick that it means sickly, people with minor ailments and diseases. The only thing he was able to do was lay his hands upon a few sickly folks, folks with minor ailments, and healed them. Now, why could he not do any mighty work? Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he marveled. There are some examples in the scripture, in the gospels, where it says Jesus marveled at people's faith. Here he's marveling at their lack of faith. Now, whose lack of faith? Well, we'd have to say that it was the whole city as represented by the people in the synagogue. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, he tried to overcome it, tried to overcome the unbelief. The Bible says in Romans ten seventeen. so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So what has he got to do to overcome the unbelief? Teach. Let them hear the word so they can believe something else. He marveled because of their unbelief and he went around about their villages teaching. He went around about their villages teaching now here's the question if unbelief the unbelief that jesus encountered in in the synagogue in nazareth if unbelief kept the power of god that was on jesus which the bible says jesus was anointed with the holy ghost without measure that means he had the 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 entirety of the capacity or potential of the holy ghost no healing work would have been too big no miracle would have been too difficult Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost without measure. That means it implies that we have the Holy Ghost by measure. You'll see some people that are anointed of the Holy Ghost to do certain things. Some people are anointed of the Holy Ghost to teach. Some people are anointed of the Holy Ghost to preach. Some people are anointed of the Holy Ghost with a healing ministry. Some people are anointed of the Holy Ghost to heal certain types of diseases like gifts of healings in operation and things like that. But Jesus had it all. Jesus didn't have the Holy Ghost by measure. That means he had, the, he had access to the entirety of the power of the Holy Ghost in one human being. Nobody else is ever going to have that. I think we as a church body have it collectively. Together, we have it collectively. But Jesus had it individually. So he's got the power, the unlimited power of the Holy Ghost. Would it be fair to say that it's unlimited power if it's the Spirit of God without measure? Would it be fair to say that he has the unlimited power of the Holy Ghost for signs and wonders, healings and miracles? But it wouldn't work. Wouldn't work in Nazareth. Now, why wouldn't it work in Nazareth? Well, the Holy Ghost tells us that it wouldn't work because of their unbelief. Now, if Jesus, who had the Spirit without measure, unlimited power of the Holy Ghost, couldn't get it to work in Nazareth because of their unbelief, isn't it safe to say that we're going to have trouble getting the power of God to operate when there's unbelief in our midst or in our churches or in our cities or whatever if not then we've got more than jesus had i don't know anybody's willing to say that 
Now turn with me over to Acts, the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us about the Holy Ghost being poured out. It tells us how God wants the church to operate. It gives us a picture of how God wants the church to operate. Now, if unbelief kept Jesus from doing what he was sent there to do, and and what other reason would there be for him to go to Nazareth? He didn't go to Nazareth not to do any work. That'd be stupid. He didn't go to Nazareth to thumb his nose at him and say, well, I'm doing healing works everywhere else, but I don't like you. So too bad for you. That's silly. No, in fact, Jesus is telling them in Isaiah, from uh, the scrolls of Isaiah 61, what we know of as Isaiah 61, he's telling them, I'm sent to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, that means those deliver those who need deliverance, and to, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus preaches from Isaiah 61, here's why I'm here. But none of those things took place because of the unbelief of the city. Because of the unbelief of the city. What did Jesus do to try to counteract the unbelief of the city? He taught. Now, what is he trying to teach? He's trying to teach them. He taught in their, in their villages. He tried to teach them, give them information from the word of God about what God has prophesied concerning the prophet, the Messiah to come so that they would turn loose of their wrong thinking, their wrong doctrine, and believe the truth instead. Right? Well, what is believing wrong doctrine going to do to the work of the Holy Ghost today? It's going to create the same hindrance that it did in Jesus' day. With much great, in my opinion, with much greater effect. Because nobody here has the anointing of the Holy Ghost without measure like Jesus did. Now, how many of you have heard church doctrine that the day of miracles is past? How many of you have heard in church doctrine that God can heal, but he doesn't heal like he used to do, doesn't heal like he did in Jesus' day, and doesn't heal like he did in the early days of the church when the last apostle died, all that passed away? How many of you have heard that? Now, let me ask you a question. What percentage would you guess of the church in America believes that? Majority percentage or minority percentage? Is anybody in doubt that it's a majority? Seems very simple. I, I, I mean, conservatively, we could say it's the majority percentage. I think it's probably more like 80 to 85% if I had to guess. I, I could be wrong. But we're certainly safe in saying this majority of churches in America, Right? Why then does so much of the church complain about why God doesn't heal like he used to? The ones that are complaining that God doesn't heal like he used to are not the ones that believe in healing. By and large, they're the ones that believe that healing has been done away with, that God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore for a variety of reasons. The last apostle died, whatever. But those are the very ones that are complaining Because we don't have the same experiences that we see recorded in the early chapters of the book of Acts. The early days of the church. Now, I want to ask you this. What if, what if 
It had been preached for several centuries. Just like it has about healing being done away with and so forth. There's always been a remnant that believed in it. Don't get me wrong. There's always been those that believed in in the truth. But from the beginning, there was a decreasing percentage that believed that until we got to the point where we are today. Excuse me, my tape is coming undone. Oh, great. Well, we'll make do. I can't, it's not holding. Isn't this a lovely thing? Okay, let's try to work with that. Okay, let's say that, uh, well, the church history tells us that the church began in, uh, in unity of the faith as far as the work of God was concerned. What was God's original intent? God's original intent was, as prophesied by Joel, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. What is the correlating scripture that identifies that work? Acts 2.4, and they were all filled with the spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. Who did God leave out? Nobody. That started with just 120. I don't know why there weren't more than 120 around. Certainly more than 120 had seen Jesus raised from the dead. But everybody that believed in the resurrection was filled with the Holy Ghost. And it tells us experience after experience, event after event, where those who were saved then were instructed to be filled with the Holy Ghost. There was no resistance whatsoever. People were filled with the Spirit. So what can we say? We can say that in the early days of the church... In the book of Acts, as recorded in the book of Acts, the Holy Ghost had total and complete possession of the church. Do you know why we have the examples of healings and miracles and so forth that we did in the book of Acts? Because that was when the church, the condition of the church was that the Holy Ghost had complete possession of his church body. Now, we know what happened. We know throughout history, uh, people began to deny that healings and miracles were part of the work and the plan and the purpose of God. I don't know who first came up with the idea that the last apostle, when the last apostle died, then things changed. But from that point, a smaller and smaller, a decreasing percentage of the church believed in healings and miracles and being filled with the Spirit. That's obvious, right? Now, I would imagine it was gradual to begin with, but it got bigger and bigger and bigger to where now it's the majority percentage of the church. What if instead of the belief, the decreasing percentage, or decreasing number of people in the body of Christ that believed that healings and miracles were still part of the plan and the purpose of God, instead of that, what if they started believing that the day of regeneration had passed? That people aren't getting, can't get born again the same way that they did when the apostles were here. How hard would it be to get somebody saved or born again nowadays? What would you have to do? You'd have to overcome the wrong thinking that has taken root because of wrong doctrine, doctrine contrary to the scripture. You'd have to overcome that wrong doctrine to get people to believe what the Bible has said instead of what their church teaches. How hard would that be? It'd be pretty tough, wouldn't it? Because those that believed in the new birth would then be considered a heretic by the churches 
for those that believe that day had passed. And that's exactly the situation we've got where healing and the power of God is concerned today. It's exactly the same situation. Acts chapter 2 tells us about how the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches and and, uh, what is it? 3,000 people get saved on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 3 tells us, uh, well, let's not even skip over to Acts 3. Notice in uh, chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, in other words, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people got saved and baptized. Nobody's arguing about water baptism. Nobody's saying, well, I, I don't think we ought to do it that way. I don't want to get sprinkled. I don't want to get dunked. There's no argument about water baptism. There is what is called the unity of the faith in the church when it's first born. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and break in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Why? Because they're operating according to God's original plan. Notice that the church is in an infancy stage. There's not even a pastor. There are those that were with Jesus, 11, and one that will replace Judas. These guys were known as the ones that were with Jesus, but they're not known as apostles with power. They're not known as special ones. The church hadn't deified them yet. The church hadn't made something special out of them yet. This thing is just getting started. Peter just steps up. I'm sure they're all looking around after everybody's filled with the Holy Ghost and and people are speaking in tongues and everybody comes together and they're looking at each other and say, wow, this looks like one of the crowds that Jesus used to have. What are we going to do now? And the Holy Ghost comes on Peter and Peter stands up and starts preaching, tells about Jesus. And you look at Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2, it's the simplest thing in the world. There's no polish to the polished sermon to this. He just said, Jesus is the son of God. He came to the earth. He died on the cross. You know that. You put him to death just like the the rest of the world did. But he's raised from the dead. And everybody said, oh, wow. What are we going to do? Peter said, repent and be baptized and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay. There's not some high professionalism operation of, of, of the church going on here, folks. There's simple people operating in the flow of the Holy Ghost and the ones that don't know what's going on believe the ones that are receiving what happened with the common sense idea that, well, they must know more about it than me. They're speaking in tongues and I'm not. Wouldn't that be a nice attitude to find in the church today? No, the people that don't do anything, the people who don't know nothing about healing, the people who don't know anything about being filled with the Holy Ghost, they're the ones with all the answers for the church. It's kind of like the old saying in college, them that can do and them that can't teach. It's a simple operation. Why is it a simple operation? Why are there so many miracles? Well, let's keep reading here. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And sold their possessions and good imparted to them to all men, even as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. 
Folks, what I want you to see out of this, I don't want to talk about communism and all this other kind of stuff, the communal way of living and so forth. What I want you to get, get across to you, what I want you to see is very simply this. These people's lives were changed. We're not talking about somebody that went to a meeting. We're talking about people whose lives were changed and changed so radically. They've been changed so completely by, being, by the new birth, by the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and by signs and wonders that are taking place. Notice it doesn't happen all at once. They're continuing daily in breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, they're sticking together. The people that have, are receiving the things of God are sticking together, being a, a strength to one another. Don't you know the Holy Ghost is coming upon different people at different times to teach or to, to minister or to preach or, or to, to speak and communicate in some way or another? You've got gifts of the Spirit taking place. You've got the Holy Ghost doing different things. They're sitting there and Jim does something and we say, wow. And Jim says, wow, I've never done that before. Well, that sounds like something Jesus said. Well, that must have been the Holy Ghost. Then Fred does something. It's like, Wow. Stuff is happening to such a degree that people are saying, man, this is so cool. We need to take care of each other. I've got stuff I can sell so that other people are blessed and other people are helped. You tell me that's not a life change? Jews are selling stuff and giving it away? Acts chapter 3, healing at the beautiful gate. Uh Uh-oh. Now it's spreading into the, into the temple. Notice that everything's okay until it gets into the temple. Why? Because now here's a confrontation with wrong doctrine. Now what's the confrontation? Is Peter going there and preach and say, Oh, you religious leaders, you don't know anything. I can tell you what's really true and what's real. No. The confrontation is the power of the Holy Ghost manifests. Is Peter trying to get people together to pray that it will happen in the temple? No. It shows us what God's plan is. God confronts wrong belief with power. So the man at the beautiful gate is healed. The religious leaders come together and grab hold of Peter and John, take them before the council and say, by what name or by what power have you done this? Holy Ghost comes on Peter again. He starts preaching and says, well, you remember that guy you crucified? He was the son of God. And you're responsible for his death, but now he's alive again. And he's the one that's empowered us and given us his name, given us the same power of the Holy Ghost. We're doing the same healing miracles that he did while he was here. Remember that, by the way? And there's nothing you can do about it. Nah, 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 nah. Man, it stirs them up. What do they do? Threaten them. Command them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4. I want you to notice it says in verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. What does it mean when it says they lifted up their voice to God with one accord? What does that mean? Has somebody got a script? Does Peter, Peter step up and say, listen, I wrote this prayer out while I was in jail. 
distribute this around. You guys look over each other's shoulders so we can all pray the same thing. Of course not. What are they doing? They're praying in the Holy Ghost. And this is the Holy Ghost interpretation of what they prayed. When you pray in an unknown tongue, you're speaking not unto men but unto God. What are you praying? You're praying the perfect plan and will and the purpose of God. This is the Holy Ghost interpreting through Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, interpreting for us, this is what God heard them speak in other tongues. The Holy Ghost inspired them to speak. This is the interpretation of their prayer. Lord, God, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. By the way, folks, I want you to notice that it said Herod was appointed by God. think god always picks the best candidate to be president or leader or king or whatever think again god picks the people that will work according to the plan and purpose that he has designed and informed us of through the bible and now lord verse 29 and now lord behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word who is praying it says being let go they went to their own company This is the church praying. This is not Peter and a small group praying. This is the church. This is not Peter's prayer. This is the church's prayer. Now, why in the world would the church pray together like this in in this manner in such a way that the Holy Ghost would reveal this to us? Because the Holy Ghost has complete possession of the church. What's the Holy Ghost going to do if he wants the church to pray like that now? Well, first of all, he can't use the people that don't believe in being filled with the Holy Ghost. Secondly, he can't use the people that are too busy to speak with other tongues, even though they're filled. So if God wanted to use the church right now, at this point in time, he's using basically the church. This is the church that exists. How would God use the church as a whole like that now? What I want you to see, folks, is the condition of the church is a whole lot different than it was in the book of Acts. And the reason it's different is because of wrong teaching and wrong doctrine. Now, that's not to say God can't get something done. I think the big miracle is that God's able to do as much as he is able to do with the condition of the church the way that it is. I don't ever look at why isn't God doing more. I look at, my goodness, Lord, how magnificent you are to be able to do what you're doing. Look what he's got to work with. He's got over half of the church in America. Just forget about the rest of the world. But in America, he's got half of the church, over half of the church in America saying he doesn't even do what he's trying to do. And we complain that more is not being done. And now, Lord, behold the threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that they may speak thy word. By stre- with all boldness they may speak thy word. By stretching forth your hand to heal, and the signs and wonders may be done in the name of the holy child Jesus. This is not Peter and John praying that God would use them. 
This is the church praying that God would use whoever he wants. He's not saying, the church is not praying by the interpretation of the Holy Ghost. The church is not praying, and Lord, use Peter and John. And let them have great healing ministries. Grant unto your servants. Who do they consider servants to be? Just the ministers? Well, servants are everybody. The church is praying that the church would operate in the healing and miracle ministry of God. Wouldn't that be marvelous if the church would pray that today? Did it work? And when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, wait a minute. I thought this group was filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts 2. This is not talking about they received the Holy Ghost. It's talking about the Holy Ghost came upon them all. It energized them. The Bible, the Bible teaches that there is one infilling of, or one baptism of the Holy Ghost, but many infillings. It means that the Holy Ghost came upon them and anointed them, empowered them, anew and afresh. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they, 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 not Peter and John, they, the whole group, spake the word with boldness. Well, isn't that what they prayed? It's exactly what they prayed. God answered their prayer. Notice, folks, when God gets the church in his possession, when the church is totally and completely possessed of the Holy Ghost to do the plan and the purpose of God, this stuff works easy. It's no big thing. The church prays and God says, sure. Why? Because they're saved, they're filled with the Spirit, and they're taught in the truth of the Word to the degree that they know, and they don't know half of what we know. But they're under the possession of the Holy Ghost. Wouldn't it be nice if God had control of his family? (laughs) When they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they all had, had all things in common. Notice when they're filled with the Holy Ghost, it draws you closer to take care of one another. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. Skip with me over to chapter twelve or chapter 5, verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Please notice what things look like when God has control of his church. When the church is possessed of the Holy Ghost, operating in the simple truth, the beginning doctrine that God had identified, which is born again, spirit-filled, and empowered with the Holy Ghost. Notice the simple operation 
when God has control of the church, people are healed in the streets. You don't have to have special healing services. People are healed in the streets. Well, why? Oh, but Pastor Mike, that's what we want today. Why don't we have that? Because God doesn't have control of the church. The majority of the American church is arguing about whether being spirit-filled is real. Another big percentage of the church is arguing about is born-again really necessary. I love how they take these polls and they say, well, among born-again Christians, such and such is the, is the opinion. And I think, what other kind is there? Unborn again Christians? Spiritually dead Christians? Come on. Do you see what we argue about? Do you see what the modern day church argues about? Do you see how this works? Do you see the difference, the contrast between the condition of the church today and the condition of the church in the book of Acts? Now I'm running out of time, so let me close this. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4. This is an oversimplification, so I'll leave this up to you to either study out for yourself or pray about it or whatever, but I'm going to throw it out there. Being in one accord simply means being in the unity of the faith. That's the simplest definition you can have for the early church where it says they were all with one accord or continued with one accord. It means they were in the unity of the faith. It does not mean that everybody had everything together. We see in Acts chapter 5, in between the prayer for boldness and people being healed in the streets, the first 10 or 11 chapters of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of chapter 5 is where Ananias and Sapphira try to uh, push themselves into a place in ministry. So people are still being people. People still have faults. There are still things that are going on. There are still things that are, that are contrary to the law of love and so forth. Being in one accord doesn't mean nobody's missing it, nobody's committing sin. It means that they're in the unity of the faith. Now, notice in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, it says, And he, speaking of Jesus, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. You remember Jesus said, Upon the knowledge that he was the Son of God, he would build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's one of the building blocks of the church. Here's one of the characteristics, the aspects of Jesus building the church. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Part of the building of the church is establishing of ministry gifts. And there weren't very much, there wasn't very much established, weren't very many ministry gifts established when we read that the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the flow of the Holy Ghost was taking place through Acts chapter 5. Peter is kind of in the de facto position of being shepherd, but he doesn't stay there very long. By the time Acts chapter 12 comes around, James is the leader of the church. So God's got a fill-in. God's starting off in the early days of the church with a fill-in pastor. Not even somebody that was called to be that position, that ministry position. Are you with me? See, people talk about, well, we need to get back to the organization of the early church. You mean when nobody was developed? You mean when ministry gifts weren't established yet? They were just in their infancy stage. We want to go back to that? Really? Now, I've got to tell you, if we could trade that for the full possession of the Holy Ghost, the church being in the full possession of the Holy Ghost again, I'd be okay with that. Undeveloped ministry gifts operating under the full possession of the Holy Ghost, church-wide, would be a marked improvement over the professional ministry gifts that we've got today. But that wasn't God's plan. 
God's plan is for ministry gifts to develop and the church to stay under the control of the Holy Ghost. God's never, God never was intending in any way, shape, form, or fashion for the Holy Ghost to lose possession of the church in any way, in any form, to any degree. Man's the one that did that through wrong doctrine. Is this making any sense to you at all? So he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Notice what 4, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. For the perfecting of the saints. Now think about it in line with what God's original intent was. A Holy Ghost-controlled church. What does Holy Ghost-controlled church mean? Let me define my terms. Holy Ghost-controlled church means born again, spirit-filled, praying for the latter rain, praying for the move of God, and prevailing in prayer for the sick. See, where it talks about they brought the sick from all the quarters and laid them in the streets of Jerusalem. Do you know why they did that? They didn't do that because Peter was some hot dog. They didn't do that because there was a, 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 a fame or some kind of advertising going around about healing by shadow. They did that because the church was praying for the sick, and so they went out and got them. They didn't care how they were going to get healed. I don't, in any, you could not convince me for 30 seconds that anybody planned for somebody to be healed by shadow. What happened, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, what happened was there was such prayer being made for the sick because everybody knew the church was under the possession of the Holy Ghost, fully under the possession of the Holy Ghost. They knew that healing was part of the work that Jesus did and part of the work that was to continue in the body of Christ. So they're praying. Man, everybody's excited about it. People are getting healed right and left. So they're praying more and more for the sick. So they add faith to their, to their prayer. In, in one sense, we could say it this way. Not just Peter and John and the apostles are praying the prayer of faith. The whole church is praying the prayer of faith where healing and miracles are concerned. It's occupying the prayer life. So what do they do? They go find every sick person they can get. There's not a room big enough to put them in. So they lay them in the streets. So the apostles come out of the rooms where they are, wherever they are assembled. They come out of this place and they say, wow, what are we going to do with all these people? And Peter happens to walk down the street and his shadow passes over somebody and somebody screams, I'm healed. How'd you get healed? I don't know. Your shadow passed over me and, and I got healed. And all of a sudden the shadow, the sun moves, the shadow goes in a different direction. And somebody else screams healing. John says, Peter, your shadow's healing people. Peter runs down the street. You can't tell me that these guys planned this. How would you know to plan it? Peter comes out one day and says, Now, today is a healing by shadow day. Now, the sun comes up this way, so everybody line up on that side of the street. Are you kidding me? They find out that it happens as it happens. It's the Holy Ghost doing the work. I can just see God in heaven having a ball with this stuff because his children are totally under his control. Born again, filled with the Holy Ghost, prevailing in prayer and praying for the move of the Spirit. What would the perfecting of the saints look like today? Saved, filled with the Holy Ghost, praying 
for the, the move of the Spirit and prevailing in prayer for the sick. That's God's original intent. It's still his intent today. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Sure, it means spiritual development, but what's going to develop you more spiritually than those things that we just identified? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. In other words, perfecting the saints so that everybody becomes a servant. Remember what they prayed in Acts 4? Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants, not apostles, not ministry gifts, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why the church had such boldness in the early days? Because God was healing through everybody. Why was he healing through everybody? Because that's what they prayed for. They didn't pray, Lord, give us boldness and then heal. They prayed, Lord, give us boldness by healing. Show the manifested power of the Holy Ghost, the manifested healing power of, of the name of Jesus, and we'll be bold to tell it. And that's the way it worked. The place shook. They were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak boldly. And God healed and did great wonders. So what are the ministry gifts given for? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers, that's not two separate words. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, coined one word, pastor, teacher. So we often call them five-fold ministry gifts, but there's really only four identified. For the perfecting of the saints. For or to do the work of the ministry. This may be a big surprise to you folks, but I'm not here to do the work of the ministry. You are. I'm here to give you the truth so that you can be perfected and grow up to know what your job is and then go do your job. Why? Because you reach people I'll never reach. And healing's supposed to take place in the streets, not in the church. For the perfecting of the saints. What are the ministry gifts given for? For the perfecting of the saints. For or to do the work of the ministry. For or so that the edifying of the body of Christ can take place. How long is this supposed to take place? How long is this supposed to work? Till we all come into the unity of the faith. That's a familiar phrase that we've been talking about tonight. What is the unity of the faith? Saved, spirit-filled, praying for the move of the Holy Ghost, and prevailing in prayer for healing for the sick. Till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or complete man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. What's the problem in the church today? Wrong doctrine. It's wrong doctrine that keeps the church from being under the full possession of the Holy Ghost. What's to overcome that? Pastoring and teaching. The work of teaching. There's a connection. There's a divine connection that Paul by the Holy Ghost is making between the church and teaching. This idea about teaching outside the church and stuff like that, that's just, that's just not the way God set things up. Now, without, doubt, without a doubt, there have been certain things that have happened because churches weren't open to the teaching of the truth and God's had to go around uh, the corner on some things, there's no question about that. But that's not God's intent. That's not what God ever intended or ever designed. 
that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Now, folks, what I want you to see is I want you to back up with me to verse 13. God gave the ministry gifts to equip the church to do the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ can be built up. Can we say that that, the picture of that is Acts chapter 5? The first five chapters of the book of Acts, is that not the picture of a church who is built up and edified? It's not the church that's the most knowledgeable. That's not the most knowledgeable of the church or a period of time that the, in the church history. But they're certainly doing the work of Jesus. They're certainly operating according to the fullness of God's plan. So what are the ministry gifts given for? They're given to perfect the saints, to do the work of the ministry so the body of Christ can be built up. How long are they operating? Till we all come to the unity of faith. Where do the ministry gifts stop operating? As we know it, at the rapture. Now, the Bible talks about after the rapture, the two witnesses. The Bible talks about the 144,000 evangelists. But that's not the church age. That's not the operation of the church. The end of the church age occurs when Jesus comes back for us in what's known as the rapture. This is talking about ministry gifts in the church age. In other words, it gives us a picture of what the end is supposed to be like. God's intent is for the church to come back to the unity of the faith before Jesus returns. In other words, God's intent is for the church to be under the full possession of the Holy Ghost at the end like it was in the beginning. Saved, spirit-filled, praying for the move of the Holy Ghost and prevailing in prayer for the, the healing of the sick. Not for the ministry gifts to do this, for the church world, the church body to do this. Do you see what God will, is planning to do for the end? Where the Bible says the glory of the Lord shall be seen and known upon the whole earth before the end comes. Do you know what that means? That means God is going to start moving by the Holy Ghost. And people are going to get so caught up they're going to forget about their doctrine. People who have the idea that, the, that, that Jesus doesn't heal like he used to because the last apostle died and all that passed away is going to be so confronted with the fact of healing, they're going to say, well, forget that. We won't, we won't even admit we ever believe that. There's going to be such a flood of people coming into the kingdom of God to get saved, such a flood of people already in the kingdom of God along with the new ones, but people that are already in the kingdom of God getting filled with the Spirit being used of the Holy Ghost. Folks, don't think that God used the people in the book of Acts, the early chapters of the book of Acts, because they were spiritually mature. They weren't. He used them because they were his children. And you're going to have people in the last days that are just as spiritually immature as anything you could possibly imagine, and God's going to do great things to them, for them and through them and use them and leave some of the whole, old hard-nosed people out sitting on the sidelines wondering, well, how could God do that? And the answer is very simple because the flow of the river of the Holy Ghost is going to sweep things along. I fully believe this. I believe this with all my heart. I believe that the church will look at in the last days. So glorious. Jesus, the Bible says Jesus said himself he's coming back for a glorious church. Well, something's got to change then. Something's got to change. 
Now, I don't mean by that that everybody will agree on every point of doctrine. I don't think that's possible. But we'll agree on the main point so that the Holy Ghost can move. I'm telling you things that I've been praying. I'm telling you things that I've been, I've been seeking the Lord about. I'm telling you things that the Lord, well, actually, I don't want to make this, uh, I don't want to be inaccurate about the way that I present this. I didn't know this till I heard myself praying it. I find out a lot of stuff by praying. The Holy Ghost teaches me a lot of things. I'll pray in tongues for a period of time, and then all of a sudden I'll hear things come out of my mouth in English, and I'll think, wait a minute, is that right? I'll start studying it out. The Holy Ghost will show me, and it's like, wow, I never saw that before. I'm fully convinced that this is the way it's going to be in the last days. It won't be a big name work. It'll be a no-name work. It'll be a work in the body of Christ, not in the ministry gifts. I think things would go back to God's original intent, that the ministry gifts will equip the people to go do the work. Well, when the work starts happening, when, when God has control of the church, you see what that looks like. People are healed in the streets. Who gets to take credit for that? Goodness gracious, are we going to have to give Jesus credit? That'll be new. Nobody will be writing newsletters trying to gain contributions off of it. Won't that be a wonderful day? Folks, what I want you to see is the condition of the church today, the condition of the church when it began, and God's intent for the condition of the church at the end. And I want you to pray about it. I want you to pray for these things. When you pray for the glory of God, when you pray for the move of God, the latter rain, and, and so forth, as the Bible speaks of, I want you to realize this is what we're praying about. We're praying for the church to come back under the possession of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm out of time, way out of time, but let me ask you this. Just for consideration, what in the world would it take to make that happen? I don't have an answer for that. This is one of those things that's too big for anything or anyone except God. But this is a small thing for God. It's a small thing for God to prove to his children who he really is. It's a small thing for the Holy Ghost to reveal himself to the church no matter what their doctrine is. Now, everybody won't accept it. I believe that's one reason the Bible talks about signs and wonders in the last days. Because a lot of people are going to be wondering what's right and what's wrong. But most of the people, people that are hungry for God, are going to get swept up in the truth, get swept up in the power of God, and will go along with it even if they don't understand it all. And I don't believe it's something that will take a long time either. I believe it will be a quick work. And I believe it will have monumental consequences and bring, bring results that are beyond anything that we can imagine. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. I just don't believe that the rapture is going to come and Jesus won't have that work finished. Wouldn't that be silly for the Holy Ghost to set and tell Paul, here's the work, here's how it's supposed to be, And then Jesus failed on his end. It's not going to happen.
there will come a time where healing will be so easy. It'll be so simple because the church is back under the control of the Holy Ghost and operating in the way that it should. And people will still be people. People will still be messing up. There'll still be sin. There'll still be people dealing with the flesh and so forth. But they will have committed themselves to the Holy Ghost to such a degree that that won't matter. And the greatest sickness, the greatest disease, the greatest cases of, of, uh, of infirmity and, or, or so forth will be no match for the flow of the Holy Ghost healing river. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of who we are and what belongs to us. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us what the last days will be. Lord, let it start with us. Show us, Lord, how to pray. Prompt us to give ourselves to praying in the Holy Ghost so that we're not praying according to our will or our plan or our purpose or how we think things will work, but so that we're praying according to your perfect plan. Thank you, Father, that the Holy Ghost gives us utterance to pray for the glory of God. You said, Lord, ask for the rain in the time of the latter rain. Let that be our life's work from here on out. You said that the glory of the latter house, the glory of the church will be greater than of the former. And in this place you'll give peace. Let peace flow from the church like a river. Let salvation rise as a tide. And healings be commonplace. Not in our churches, but in our streets. Even as it was in the days of the Acts. Lord, make it be so. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, forgive me for going over time, but thank you for being so attentive. You're dismissed.